Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 117, History is a Burden. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 7 of Buffy, Fool for Love, and series 8, episode 3 of Doctor Who, Robot of Sherwood. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, mm-hmm. Buffy first this week. Um, you just mentioned a minute ago that this is a, a good a favorite of yours and a good one. And yeah, I do. I, I have really to like this agree. One. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was very good. It's nice to finally get. We've gotten, I think, um, a lot of Spike sort of uh, backstory told to us, but like it's nice to finally kind of get some. Uh, real meaty flashback sort of origin story for him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Have we even really seen, like, maybe snippets here and there in, like, other flashbacks, like, around flashbacks? Angel and stuff? But I, I don't think so. I can't remember I don't think if we so. Have. I think it's all just been in, like, dialogue that... Yeah. I, I don't... I could be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure not. I mean, because so, most of it's been, like, Angel and Darla or... Like right. we saw, we saw, like, uh, in the show Angel, we saw like Drew when she got yeah. turned and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I don't think we've really gotten Spike in flashbacks yet. So yeah, um, you know, yeah, and, I... <laughs> and and every time we talk about Spike, we have to remember like Whedon was going to kill him off way back in season two. Right. So like right. this is yeah. you know this is you know just how much that he has become part of the show. And yeah. I think this is an acknowledgement of that. And, uh, you know, not that, not that I think we've ever thought Spike wasn't sort of a fleshed out character to begin with, but just, mm-hmm. you know, continues to like build up and, and reinvent in some ways who and what he is. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to get to head to Spike cause I want to talk about some other stuff first, but, um, but that is some of the stuff I want to talk about is the way that this, does uh, kind of gently retcon some things and introduce some ideas that aren't necessarily what we would have expected. So, sure. um, but first I do want to start with Buffy because you kind of called her stuff the frame, which um, I hadn't thought of because it doesn't necessarily bookend the flashbacks exactly, but it does serve that way. Like it's, it's yeah. Buffy's plot is sort of what kickstarts this whole looking back at into spike's history and everything Mm -hmm. so yeah um, and and there's there's a sense where i mean i think like looking at it just in this episode i think that's true like i i mm kind of i do think that obviously there's a sense where like buffy's clearly is the main story because you know it's her show and you know hers is sort of the longer arc like she's dealing you know she's dealing with her own uh uh mortality and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So like obviously that's very important, but there is a sense where like in this particular episode that her the events that happened to her are almost like the frame, you know, through which we can see yeah. Spike's story. Um yeah. and the excuse that we kind of are given to explore right. that story a bit. <laughs> um Right, so. right. So so to start, you know, there's this run-in with the vampire, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a pretty um, effective opening. Like, 
you have her, you know, Spike kind of later says, like, you're getting sort of cocky and starting to think that you're invincible. Mm -hmm. And you do kind of have her, you know, doing her kind of, you know, to use the doctor's word, bantering as she's, mm. like, you know, slaying the vampire that, you know, um, you know, does Buffy enjoy slaying? Well, you know, I don't think she gets off on killing in quite the same way as what she says later that Spike does. But at the same time, there does seem to be a kind of satisfaction from not just like killing them, but, you know, mm. being kind of cocky while she does it and and making her jokes and her quips and everything. Um, and so there does kind of seem to be a little bit of the pride before the fall of she's been training harder and working harder and, you know, and seems very confident and sure of herself. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment when, you know, this sort of regular Joe vampire, like he's nobody special, um, catches her off guard. Yeah. And it's a pretty shocking thing to have the Slayer staked. Like, I think that's interesting. Yeah. It's not, it's not just that he like injures her. It's like he stakes her, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then it cuts to the credits. So, you know, kind of starting it on that note of, holy crap, she could actually, like, die if she's not careful. Right. Um, and, and I thought that's a pretty seen... interesting opening, and it was effective, I thought. And we've seen Buffy get hurt before, obviously, but it's always yeah. been, like, at the hands of, like, a really big, bad enemy. You know, like, you know... Right, it's the, the master, master, it's yeah. the mayor, or, you know, right. you know, or Spike or Angel right. or whatever. And, the, and those are the ones we expect are threats. And I think that's yeah. the same thing. It's like we as the audience have also sort of become complacent and cocky. And this mm -hmm. is, and, and that's Whedon's signature, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the, when you least expect it, yeah. you know, something's going to happen uh, kind of right. thing. And so it does here and shows us that, yeah, like, you can't necessarily expect that uh, Buffy is going to be uh, mortal or immortal forever, you know, that she's always going to win or whatever. And so some very, you know, thinking about what, you know, what we've sort of been thinking, too, just with mortality and whatever so far in this season, like, you know, you're opening up with... Uh, the season again with Dracula who's mm -hmm. immortal and who like and like not only immortal but like who keep who comes back even after being staked like right, that right. kind of thing you <laughs> right. know and like um the opposite way you have this uh you know being this energy key thing that um becomes mortal that becomes mm -hmm. dawn you know and so so there are these like issues of mortality and immortality kind of being played with here mm -hmm. like just even so far in the season you know we're not very we're not super far into it you know about a quarter of the yeah. way into it so it's like we're you know looking at this stuff uh already and and i think just that reminder of like it's not just the people around buffy mm -hmm. who are sort of affected by one or the other mortality immortality but it's her herself too like her too right. yeah you know she does win a lot but there is a day where she's going to die and like i i, I even like i love that quote that she has um you know it's like the 
perfect sort of Buffy personality quote of, you know, I realize every Slayer comes with an expiration mark on the package, but I want mine to be a long time from now, like a Cheeto. <laughs> like, right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, yeah. or a Twinkie or something like that. You know, right, one of right. those like artificial foods that just is going to last a, Right, really past the, the the zombie apocalypse. That's what you can sort of count on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that is a great quote. Um, and, you know, an interesting kind of continuation of this idea. So, like, at the end of the last season, after having the dreams with the first Slayer, and it's that's what kind of set her on this path of training, you know, harder and being more learning, you know, what the legacy of her role is and everything, mm -hmm. that this is kind of like an expansion of that. So, like, okay, we're still looking back into the history of the Slayers, but now it's, like, from a slightly different angle. Like, not what makes them powerful or not what makes them, you know, heroes or good or anything like that, but they all died. So, you know, why did that happen? Um and so it's kind of like continuing on that idea, but just sort of tweaking it slightly. Yeah. Um, so we might as well, um, I want to quickly kind of talk about Riley. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, he's the one who kind of comes in and sort of rescues her. So I guess he's sort of, shadowing her without her really knowing it you know he's sort of hanging around uh i don't it didn't seem like they were really patrolling together it seemed like you know he's sort of in the background there and luckily for buffy was there to sort of step in and help her um but we still have this idea of her him not being really fully allowed to do you know do the kind of action hero stuff that he was doing before but him still kind of not being cool with that mm -hmm. um so you know you get him you know not only kind of rescuing her and patching her up but then offering to go patrolling um which she kind of agrees to as long as he takes the others and then when the others are like a total disappointment he just sort of ditches them <laughs> like you know they're they're annoying to him like they they're all they're there and they're kind of bright, bright colors. Like he's all in his like dark camouflage, like he's going to blend in and they're in like bright red and yellow and everything and eating chips and talking amongst themselves and being, you know, annoying. Um, so, you know, so you get him kind of conceding to what Buffy wants, but when it doesn't work, um, yeah. making an excuse and getting them to, you know, okay, we'll come back in the morning. There's too many. And then once they're gone, he goes in and takes right. on the whole nest by himself. Right. So, you know, he's getting kind of a little bit more cocky and reckless too, I think. Um, yeah. I, so let's talk about that. Cause we've, we've seen, so do you think this is, how, well, how do I ask this without leading? Um, we so like with with going to the vampire bar, like uh -huh. that was kind of reckless because hey, it's a vampire bar and you're not a vampire. Like, right. is is this along the same path? Do you think? Do you think this is like different? 
in any way? Like, what what are your thoughts on like sort of? I don't um, like. Do you see this as a progression or? I, I think so. Um, I mean, I think the slight difference is that, to me, the kind of like. The vampire bar thing was dangerous, not only like physically dangerous of, like you said, you're human among vampires, so you're kind of playing with fire like they could attack you. But also it seemed like dangerous in the relationship, in the way that he's upset about Buffy and and he's going off to... So even just the idea of him like going off to a bar on himself and chatting with another girl is sort of dangerous in a way. You know, like... Mm -hmm. There's the kind of playing with fire of, oh, are you being, you know, faithful to Buffy, you know? Whereas, like, to me, this is physically reckless in the same way, but I could also see this being a kind of, you know, maybe ill-conceived act of, like, devotion to Buffy. That, oh, I'm going to go take out this vampire that hurt her, you know? And mm -hmm. I don't... and. He's going about it maybe in a really dangerous and silly way, but it's not, it seems more kind of, it seems more in keeping with the Riley that loves Buffy and wants to be with her no matter what she feels. Um, not so much the side of him that's starting to get a little bit frustrated when she doesn't reciprocate or share with him or treat him a certain way. So... I don't know that they're inconsistent. I think maybe he's sort of going between the two of like, you know, maybe some days he cares whether Buffy reciprocates those feelings and some days he doesn't. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it kind of, I think, I think my jury's out on which of those will win in the end. Um, mm -hmm. But they're both to me like, reckless in the sense of he's getting careless with his own safety you sure, know sure. and that's the part of him that i think is wanting to prove that he's still you know can take care of himself can fight can do all these things and you know um you know past the point because like I, that was to me totally reasonable of oh there's a bunch of vampires maybe we come back when they're sleeping and we take care of them as a group like that seemed like a really logical thing to do um, right. And then he just doesn't do that. He, you know, goes in and picks a fight on his own, um, which it works out. But same as with Buffy, there's only so many times you can do that, you know, before your luck runs out. So um, that's my sure. kind of interpretation right now. Sure, sure. No, and that, and that I, I don't want to, you know, say. Right. Anything one way, one way or, or the other. So, you know, I already feel like the way I sort of phrased it maybe hinted at what what, what I was going. But anyway, um, just thought I'd just thought I'd share. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway. Um, yeah, oh. I, you know, Riley is like, like I, I think you're right. Like clearly one way or the other, both are sort of reckless. <laughs> You know, yeah. in one way or the other, whether they're the same sort of recklessness or, you know, there's a different quality to one or the other. Like, and to me, it seems like, like he's feeling sort of lost himself. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't, you know, and again, like remembering that he was a military guy and now he's, 
like his personality doesn't change just because he's no longer with an army. <laughs> right. And like, right. so maybe there's an aspect of he's looking, you know, he's feeling his way, trying to figure out how to act sort of on his own without orders all the time mm-hmm. or without sort of standing, um, well, standing orders, I guess would be, you know, like, you know, a protocol to follow or that kind of thing. Like he's still right. kind of figuring out. And so, yeah, maybe some of it's just, this is what he knows how to do. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like he's trying to connect with Buffy in some way or other. And it just isn't quite working the way he wishes <laughs> perhaps. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that all works. Um, I, before we move on, I want to also mention quick, the little scene with Dawn, um, because I think yeah. we get a slightly um, more more of a note of kind of solidarity between the two sisters, you know, that sure. like after that, after what we've seen of Buffy connecting with her a bit more and, you know, going a little bit easy on her and, and wanting to protect her. So now you have Dawn kind of covering for Buffy for she doesn't even know what. She just has a sense that there's something that, you know, maybe Joyce shouldn't know and and she makes up the excuse and then Buffy reciprocates that with with okay then I'll let you in on the secret you know here's the thing that I'm you know here's the thing that I'm dealing with that I don't want you know Joyce to know right now Mm -hmm. um so when she kind of does something sisterly and loyal to Buffy Buffy then like trusts her a bit more and mm. gives her a little bit more responsibility. Um, sure. So it was kind of, you know, the 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 bickering is still there, but it was nice to see a little bit more of that, you know, uh, you know, more loving relationship between them. I guess. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well. Oh, and Giles. I didn't want to forget Giles. Um, So we just, again, just a little scene with him. um, And, I mean, a lot of it, they're just talking about, like, the exposition of, you know, what it says in the books about the deaths of the Slayers and everything. But um, that kind of, you know, awkward, uncomfortable tone between them of Mm. this is a sensitive subject and... You know, yeah. Buffy misinterpreting it at first that, you know, thinking it's about watchers being sort of squeamish and thinking that death is sort of, um, you know, unseemly and not, you know, right. proper conversation. And, you know, Giles just saying how painful it is that they have to sort of watch their slayers, you know, run into danger and get killed off and how, like, he doesn't even really like to think about it or talk about it, even though he hasn't really been through it himself. Um, mm. Just the idea um, is that painful to him. So, um, you know, a nice little moment between them, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there... I mean, obviously we've we've seen Giles in a little more human light like you know from from the you know first uh season especially like where he's very stuffy and whatever and then we sort of see 
like him compared to like the other watchers who come and you know we realize like giles actually is quite less stuffy <laughs> than mm-hmm. they are or whatever but right right you know i i think the assumption is you know sort of all along that there's um an aspect to it of just like oh that's because they're academic or you know maybe don't have quite a real touch on reality but yeah. I think one of one of the things that their conversation does is kind of like you're saying, um, it does shed light on the fact that like they they're uncomfortable, you know, partly because like they they grow attached to mm-hmm. um, their slayers, but also because there's an element and and Giles sort of alludes to it that if if their slayer dies probably their watcher is going to die too because if Hmm. if the slayer gets killed and like we've seen like with faith her watcher got killed even before she did so like it's it's not just a matter of like you know presumably like you know there there there's a student and teacher relationship there but Mm -hmm. you know that doesn't preclude feelings of fondness (laughs) you know like that you know you're still gonna feel something for one way or the other and and especially, you know, we've talked about with Giles how he is very much a father figure to Buffy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is a sort of parental love relationship there of, you know, you're kind of my child in a way. And, like, I kind of spend as much time with you as your own mother does sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's an aspect there of, yeah, if you die, like, that's just going to be sad for me. Like, you know, forget mm-hmm. the mission of killing evil things like there's yeah there's sadness there but there's also the idea of it's him facing his own morality too or or Mm -hmm. mortality not morality uh mortality because if the slayer dies who's there to protect the watcher (laughs) you know what i mean like so so there's kind of multiple layers i think to that and Mm -hmm. and I think we I think that's something that we can see with Giles because we have seen him grow sort of more comfort with his human side, but there are moments like this where you do get that uncomfortableness because of that sort of relationship and and you have to wonder then if the stuffiness of the watcher is an attempt to mask some of that as well. Like right. or right. or you know, you know, put on a brave face, you know especially mm-hmm. since a lot of them seem to be English, like, you know, right. <laughs> right. going back at like the, uh, you know, to Dr. Who, like the, you know, we, we move on, like we move yeah. forward. The stiff upper lip. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh. So anyway, just, yeah, just, I think there is, there's definitely some stuff there with Giles that it's, you know, part, being sad for Buffy and part facing his own mortality at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, or not even for Buffy, but, uh, you know, the idea that he would be sad if Buffy died, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, and that even, you know, again, like, so from the practical purpose of, you know, Buffy's frustration about the histories, which is why they're sort of having the conversation of, you know, why isn't there more written about Slayer deaths? It's like, well, there's, there's the two reasons. Either it's too painful to revisit for mm-hmm. the watcher who was there or anyone who was a witness and saw the slayer die is probably killed too you right. know because if the slayer you know if someone kills the slayer 
like what normal person is going to be able to fight that right. entity, <laughs> you know. So, right, right. Um, both of those are sort of the practical reasons of why Buffy's having such a hard time with uh, the study part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a really, like, from a just sort of an extrapolation of, like, what a Slayer is, that's a really... Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we've ever sort of been prompted to think about that aspect before mm-hmm. of like, like you could almost from a, from our, per- I almost said a watcher's perspective, but like a meeting us, like as the watcher of right, the show, right, right. Um, like from, from a viewer's perspective, you could definitely ask like, well, yeah, like there is a watcher's council who supposedly has all these histories. Like why, why do they not? why do they have to, you know, seemingly keep learning the same lessons? Well, it's because yeah. the lessons never get passed on, you know? Right. So right. that kind of makes sense. Like that's, I, I think that's something where I, it's subtle, subtle enough that it does sort of take five seasons, you know, before you even are right. prepared to think about it in that way. Um, but, but I like that they can make those sorts of extrapolate extrapolations at this point into what it means to be a slayer and a watcher and the relationship and, and, you know, continue to build some complexity and nuance in that, that whole thing. Yeah. Right. And so then I think there's a couple other things too, which we get, um, you know, so that's kind of a good extrapolation of like why, there are those records, you know, and, and really good histories. But I think when, um, to kind of move more towards Buffy and Spike and their interactions, because, you know, we have uh, her, um, you know, kind of the light bulb goes on that, oh, we actually do have an eyewitness to a, f- a couple different Slayer deaths. And luckily he has a chip in his brain and she can go, you know, coerce him into... Uh, telling her what happened. Um, Mm. But I think, you know, we start to get a little bit more data about, okay, so there's like the frustration of why aren't these things written down? But then, you know, once we have the eyewitness, the frustration becomes, why did they happen in the first place? And her kind of, that's the information she wants from Spike is like, how did, you know, how could this even happen in the first place? Because, you know, Buffy's kicked his butt how many times, you know, as far as she's concerned, why, you know, what Slayer would le- would be able to let uh, Spike kill them in? And not just any Slayer, but two of them. Right. So he must have some sort of secret. There must be some, you know, trick that he used or blind spot that they have or, you know, what are what are these lessons that, you know, aren't getting, you know passed down and these mistakes that keep getting made Mm. um and i mean to me there's like a couple different things in what spike tells her you know one is this idea of you know their their job is to kind of face death on a constant basis and also to you know deal death you know to kill other beings and so there's this notion that you can't spend that much time around death and not be a little bit curious about it sure and so you know so he, that's kind of his interpretation is this there's this death wish that um you know eventually no matter who you are 
you'll just sort of submit and give in just to kind of either just for the relief of it or out of a kind of like curiosity of, you know, I have to let this happen just to see what comes next. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing too, which he doesn't kind of say as much, but kind of I was getting as I was watching it is, you know, there's, I think Buffy is, hoping and assuming that there is some sort of universal flaw like that there's a reason that you know these slayers were killed whether spike used a particular trick on them or you know they have some sort of blind spot that she doesn't know about and could like if i only knew what it was i could fix it but you know i came away with the impression of how kind of just random it is and you know that yeah. Like that's kind of how she got hurt was she didn't really do anything wrong. It just sort of right. happened. It was just an accident. Um and that seems to be the case with these um with these slayers too. You know, the one is fighting while there's all this like destruction going on and you know, the rebellion and everything. And it's like a a, a explosion that sort of distracts her for a second, you know, and that's like the one second it takes, you know, or you know, the other one, they're fighting in the subway car and, you know, the, the lights flicker. And because the light, you know, and by the time the lights are back on, she's underneath and Spike's Right, like Spike them. did something in that moment right. of... But, like, that's all it yeah. took was, like, a little hiccup in the light. And yeah, so one distraction, it, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of part of the point of this is even if you had the histories what could they really tell you? You know, I I don't think she's going to find what she's hoping for, which is like the pattern between all of them. Like, Oh, every slayer, you know, whatever. I don't, I can't even think of what it would be, but some sort of design that she could figure out of it of this is what they all did wrong. And as long as I don't do that, then I'll be okay. But probably what she would find would be a lot of the same thing, which is just, Fights which are going as normal and well as they ever go. And then, like Spike says, one day they just get lucky. And that day, you know, the vampire has a good day rather than the slayer. Sure. Um, and it And it's a good day. It's a lucky thing. It's not because the vampire is the master or very special. Um, it's just, you know, some little thing which gives them the window to, to do it. So, um, I don't know whether that's sort of the interpretation, like, I I don't know. Maybe later on we'll find out there is some reason that Slayers get killed, but I kind of feel like I'd be surprised. It seemed to me that the kind of randomness was part of the point of what we we find out in this episode. I think that is right, which is, I think, interesting then again, too, because it's like, then it doesn't really matter that the explanations aren't in the books right. because right. like you what cuz you learn from them yeah, anyway yeah, yeah there it's almost a futile pursuit to begin with um yeah no i think you're right i think i think that is a key point of you know spike's uh kills in particular but but also just if we're extrapolating from that you know other other slayer deaths like yeah that it's not there's really not much you can do and you think i mean 
and you know, of course, Buffy has already died once um, right. with the right. master. So mm-hmm. like, there's that aspect too, like that she doesn't even really consider, mm-hmm. like that. I mean, unless I'm forgetting maybe a line or something somewhere, like she doesn't even look at her own previous death, <laughs> you know, right. as like, yeah, you're right. As like, yeah. you know, if, if there's a pattern part of it, but what happened there, it's just, okay. Yeah. Like the master was very powerful, but it was also like, he just got the better of her. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. there wasn't any trick to it per se, mm-hmm. it, you know, um, except when you think about what Spike says to her about why she's still alive. Um, and he specifically uh, brings it up, you know, the only reason you've lasted as long as you have is because you've got ties to the world. Your mom, your brat kid sister, the Scoobies, they all mm-hmm. tie you here, but you're just putting off the inevitable. And so it's like, you know, again, thinking back to when she died with the master, mm-hmm. there was nobody with her. Like, you know, she went off on her own. Right. And right. It, and even, you know, and then Angel was like there but couldn't do anything because he doesn't breathe, you know, to revive her. And then, you know, Xander came along eventually and that's how she came back to life. So like, like that's the only reason she's even alive today literally is because she had someone who came along after her. But even like, you know, her death was because there was nobody there to help her out. And we've seen time and again, like, you know, even going back to the second episode where we talk about, um, you know, Buffy may not need a ton of help, but she does need, you know, Xander to put his little bit of strength behind the door to help right. close it, you know, or what right. a, whatever the many different situations in the last four and a quarter seasons that we've seen, uh, yeah. you know, to, to help with that sort of thing. So, well, and that to me is the contrast to like, because the other thing with, with that, with her first death is, um, you know, I think that's also more fuel for the like death wish uh, scenario, you know, because you mm. have her, you know, them talking about, oh, she's prophesied to die. And she kind of, you know, there's that speech about, you know, how she's 16 and she doesn't want to die, but she still makes the choice to go down there, even though she knows that'll happen, you mm. know, because of who she is and that she knows it's, what she has to do. So even though she may not have the death wish in the sense that, you know, she wants to die, there's still that sense of she's willing to, and she'll put herself in that situation if, if it's, if she thinks it's right. Um, But that, that, so it's kind of like you have this tension between that, the kind of like suicidal hero death wish of like, I'm going to go down guns blazing, fighting for good and everything, that kind of is pulling on one side. And on the other side, you have her, you know, the Slayer with family and friends, that she has all these connections and these people who help her, which are the thing which, when she goes down that route, pull her back, I think. Mm. Um, So again, like with Riley, it's like, which of those will end up, you know... Right. Uh, being dominant, I guess, yeah. is sort of the question. Yeah. Um, it sort of remains to be seen. Hmm. Um, 
Hmm. Before we get into... I don't quite want to get into all the flashbacks yet. I want to finish with Buffy and Spike together. Um, so, so even though we're... I don't want to talk about the flashbacks yet. You know, I have to mention them because we get the very explicit callback of Buffy echoing um, Cecily, I think her name is, in her yes in her rejection of Spike of of you're yeah. beneath me yeah um so we get <laughs> for Spike we get him sort of acting on you know this tension which he's felt of you know they're getting you know, more and more physical as he's explaining, you know, trying to get, explain himself to her and tell her, like, you know, what's going on. And they're kind of fighting and it's getting more sort of heated and passionate. And then he sort of takes it that one step further and starts to sort of lean in. And, yeah. of course, her reaction is, you know, that kind of, what? Not just surprise, <laughs> not just surprise, but that kind of disgust of like, yeah. what are you even thinking? You know, right. how could you even think this? Um, so, yeah. So, again, and and I think with the echo of Cecily, it's this. Not just is it not requited, but a very definite put down of you know. It wouldn't be you. It could never be you. You're beneath me. So not right. just I don't feel the same way, but, you know, you're not even worth my time or, right. or worth considering. Um, and then kind of pushes him in the gutter and throws the money down like the cheap thing he is, you know, <laughs> like, like right. adding adding every insult to the injury that she can think of. Um, so, yeah. I don't, I don't know where to go from that, but, um, yeah, I mean, and obviously, so the parallels, the parallels are interesting because we obviously know that, uh, Cecily is a love interest of Williams and that, you mm -hmm. know, now, uh, I mean, we've seen the dreams that Spike has about Buffy, so. Yeah. Whether you call that love interest or, you know, maybe lust interest, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely a thing there. I, you know, he does try to, like, play off the leaning in as, like, an intimidation thing rather mm -hmm. than a romantic thing. But, like, right. not sure how much Buffy actually buys that, <laughs> you know, right. like, right. Uh, you know, whatever. So, yeah, like, I mean, at the same time there's the ending. And so I know we weren't really, we're not really talking about Joyce, but there, sure. at, at least if we're talking about Buffy and Spike, mm -hmm. where, okay, he's mad as whatever. And is, you know, going to go kill her with his right. double barrel shotgun, right. which like, why didn't you use that before? But right. okay. You know, right. whatever, that's fine. Well, because he didn't really mean it, but we'll get back to that later. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, but then he sees her sad. And of course, his resolve right. melts, right. as do other things. Um, and sure. so he goes over and like comforts her and is like, "Yeah, is there anything I can do for you?" And you know what? And it's like suddenly they're like friends, right? And right. And there's that kind of moment where he pats her on the back, and there's like 
a bit of her that is kind of weirded out by it, like, oh, this is awkward, what are you doing? But then she just sort of, it's not the time for that, and she just sort of accepts it. Um, like, the fact that he's even, that he, of all people, is even willing to make that sort of a gesture, you know, it's sort of like, right? how do you even respond to that with with anything other than just accepting it? Um, right. You know, Um Right. And it doesn't, like, you could see him, you could even see him doing, like, like, in the other episode, uh, last time, I think, or the time before, when he's sort of stalking outside her house, and, you know, it's kind of, by then we know these sort of feelings that he's having, but he still has that kind of, you know, I'm gonna tease her to show her how much I hate her kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think what's notable about the end here is that there's not a hint of that. There's no kind of, oh, Slayer, what are you crying about now? Like, you could see him approaching it like that. Like, yeah. I'll kind of talk to you, but not in a nice way. Like, like I won't kill you, but I'm not going to be nice to you. Um, but here, it's, it's the very kind of simple, what's wrong and what can I do? Um, you know, which yeah. is like, for Spike, a pretty, you know, I don't think we've seen him do anything or say anything with that level of kind of selflessness. Usually he's the sort of out for number one, or at least that's his sort of sure. persona, is the kind of punk out for number one kind of guy. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, you know, you see him kind of, dropping not just the murderous rage but actually sort of reaching out to Buffy on her own sort of level of where she is right um, yeah I mean both of them I think in that moment are you know being about as genuine as either of them can be Buffy in her sadness and and mm -hmm. lack of uh, sort of her lack of of caring you know Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of, you know, pretense that she has the the sort of um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? She just she doesn't care about like even trying to banter or to you know right. do any right. of that sort of thing. Like it's just like, what are you here for? What do you want? Right. I'm sorry. Right. Or to hide her, yeah. or to hide her emotion from him either. Right. Um, you know, right. and even like. He's carrying the shotgun. Like, it, it, it's kind of odd. Like, he doesn't hide it. Like, he's sort of carrying it around with him, but, like, it doesn't even register. Like, right. It, he just sort of forgets about it, and she doesn't even, like, bring it up. Um, right. If she even notices it. Right, but not, um, like, the, like, but even when she's, like, saying, like, you're beneath me, you get this contemptuous sort of feel to it, like, you can't do anything to hurt me. Even, even like when you do actually punch me, you get hurt yourself. And like, you're not really even a threat to me. Like, right. Right. In this sense, it's like, like she doesn't even get to that point of like recognizing that he's not a threat to her. You know what I mean? Like right. he, like she doesn't even acknowledge the amount to which he's not a threat to her. <laughs> like that, that seems, that seems like significant sort of in a way itself. Right. Just that, right. Like he's, he's so much not a threat to her that she doesn't even have to feel like, you know, noting the fact that he's not a threat to her. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, just that kind of thing. Like there's, you, you know, just she's just so drained and and completely, you know, everything is on the surface at that point. And I think, I think in a way that his rage, you know, and getting the gun and whatever, like on one sense, it's okay. I've had enough, but. Even that's sort of a mask, right? Because, mm. like, you know, would he really kill her? You know, like, even even if he hadn't, like, seen her. Like, would there have been some other excuse, some other reason not to kill her? Right. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of right. thing. And, and you realize that even that, in a way, is sort of a mask. And so by, you know, seeing her, he drops that and is like, you know, all I really want to do is talk to you and be a normal person, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. with you. And right. ask, is there something I can do for you? And so that's what he does. And, right. um, you know, that's the affectionate poet, all I want to do is make beautiful things, right. you know. and uh, right. Which sounds funny, because he's obviously a vampire and destructive and whatever. But, like in a way that seems to be the core of who he is at least, or who Mm -hmm. he was as a person. And so of course that brings up the question that we've been asking sort of all along is what does it mean to be a demon, you know, Mm -hmm. and to have a demon in you and that kind of thing. And, and how much of your personality is shown through the vampireness. And how much of the vampireness was part of your personality to begin with? Sure. Um, sure. You know, like, like, so now we have in Angel, we have Darla who's back and, mm. but who's human and is seeming to kind of so far be, be, um, embracing the kind of sociopathic, yeah. you know, soulless lifestyle without the demon inside her. Um, so on the one hand, that kind of suggested, well, maybe evil vampires were kind of evil to begin with, or at least they had the capacity for that in them. And Mm. that that's sort of one of the reasons they, and you know, not that it's their fault they got bitten, but you know, they drank the blood and became vampires. So like, there's a kind of like a kind of culpability there for what they end up becoming. But then on the other hand, I think you have Spike who, so from what we see in this episode Um, seems to be on the other end of the spectrum that, like, was a person who was, you know, uh, sensitive and caring and, you know, was antisocial in the sense that he seemed to be a bit of a loner, um, but certainly wasn't, you know, uh, you know, sociopathic or soulless. Mm -hmm. Like, he had a lot of, he had an excess of soul, from what we can see. (laughs) And, um... And, like, sure, I think there's a hint that some of his kind of, um, like, how he behaves as a vampire isn't unrelated to how he was as a human because a lot of it seems to be a reaction against how he was treated, you know? So you get, like... Sure. Um, you know, so the name... Well, we find out William the Bloody doesn't actually have to do with his vampirism. It's just because he was a bloody, awful poet. Um, but Spike does... But but you get the guy saying the line about I'd rather have spikes through my head than listen right. to his poetry. So you kind of get this idea that 
he went and started doing that yes as a reaction to that line that oh like oh you think you'd rather have this will you well i'll show you that kind right. of a thing and um and we don't i mean obviously we don't know because we don't like see it but there's also a hint that Maybe he went back and exacted that very revenge on, on that those guy. people. Right, yeah, like right, yeah, right. like you you said this, and uh, you know I'm going to yeah. prove. I mean that's know, pure speculation. You words. But but I, it's kind of hinted at, I think. Right. Um, so you could say like, well, you know, so so the way, or or you know, his line about he because he always lived by society's rules, and now he's going to make his own rules. So this whole rebellious punk persona is a reaction right. to his kind of uptight victorian you know upbringing but again it just I think took that's... like 140 years to actually become a punk right right <laughs> he already had the yeah. attitude it's just the movement hadn't started yet <laughs> right exactly no he just needed like you know uh sid vicious to come along or whatever right, but right. um but but i also think that that's different because that doesn't say that he was you know, those kind of evil things when he was a human, it means that these things he's doing now are in reaction to how he was as a human. So it's not quite the same. Like, sure. I don't think he doesn't seem to be, and we actually don't, still don't know much about Darla as a pre-vampire human. So I don't want to assume too much about what she was like, but not he yet. wasn't like, you know, he seems like a pretty, he's not even the kind of like, layabouts uh you know that that angel that liam was you know like liam wasn't evil but he kind of was you know a bit of a rake you know or whatever yeah. like here you have the opposite like you have a very you know rule following button down and very sincere very proper very respectful all these things like there's no hint of the kind of like you know yeah um the violence later um and if it's in him it was more in reaction to those things than anything else um like the, this this uh the demon and the immortality gave him the freedom to reject these things that had been sort of holding him down before sure. but he wasn't rejecting them in life he was sort of just going along with them um so i don't know it's interesting i guess a little bit more data to keep in mind as we're trying to figure out those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk. I, I don't know that there's much to say about the Chinese slayer. Um, sure. Sort of the situation is interesting, but it, I mean, we really don't get much like, first of all, she's speaking Chinese, right. so we don't really know right, right. what she's saying or anything or much about her. Um, you know, it takes place during the boxer rebellion. Mm-hmm. We'll get more sort of about that situation, although mm -hmm. not directly from Spike's viewpoint per se. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, so we'll we'll sort of revisit that. So I don't know that there's a lot to say there. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about, though, um, the other Slayer mm -hmm. that he kills. Um, we don't get her name, do we? No. She does, so... she does have a name. I just don't remember at what point. Like, we'll also okay. revisit that situation in a, the, little, in the, a later... The one in New York? Yeah, the one in New York. Okay. Um, so we do learn her name later then, okay. I guess, if if they didn't say it. I couldn't remember if they said it in this episode or not. I don't think so, um, no. And I didn't think so either. So 
you know, I, we'll talk about it again when we when we see it. But um, yeah, no, but that I, was cool. I really liked that the way they shot that scene of mm. with the with the subway car. Like it just had a good energy to it, and I liked seeing the kind of seventies like spikes. The, you know, Spike's look is very of the period, and yeah. she's very of the period yeah. with her kind you of bell bottoms and afro. And you almost get like she's like, um, you know, an, an unseen member of like the Charlie Charlie's Angels crew. Sure, you know, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. the the uh, yeah less waspy version. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, um, you know yeah. that kind the of urban but, but like yeah, Angel. it has that yeah, you know yeah. same sort of kick ass you know whatever. Yeah. Well, and I like, too, the way that in the end, in that scene, they kind of play with the, like, um, uh, you know, cutting and the, is this diegetic or not kind of thing of, like, you have him narrating it as he's doing it. So, like, you kind of have him fighting in the car. And then, you know, as Spike in the past talking to Buffy, like, as if she's there Mm -hmm. or as if he's talking to us and you know, we're there or the camera or Buffy's the camera or I'm not quite sure. Like it plays with all this like breaking of the fourth wall and, um, and it, and it does bring in that idea of, okay, these are as far as we know, objective flashbacks, but there is that idea of a false narrator or a unreliable narrator. This is a story that Spike is telling. And, you know, if what we're seeing is what he's describing, that might not necessarily be what somebody else saw from a different angle, I guess. Sure. Um, and so, and so we also get, you know, that he steals her coat. Like, you know, this is like a trophy mm-hmm. coat almost. Right. Um, he, I don't think he took, did he take something from the other Slayer too? I don't recall. Not specifically. Not that I noticed. No. Um, but, but I wanted to mention the coat specifically and, and the look, because like that's sort of the look he still has, right. Is, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the punk and, and so, yeah, you know, the seventies is that sort of punk era, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the beginning of that sort of punk era, um, where, where you're getting, you know, this rebellious streak. And, and again, he's sort of had it all along, but it's like now he's fit into his own, but like now he has the full look mm-hmm. and after coming off of the last episode of angel mm-hmm. where angels talking to uh the fake swami but right. you know who's giving actually some really interesting and accurate we think <laughs> advice about appearance mm-hmm. uh you know especially with the all black and the you know leather overcoat and stuff it's like hmm mm-hmm. right a lot could be said about the same for Spike too. Right. Um, you know, especially in this instance where like he hasn't changed his look in the last 20 odd years at, right. you know, the point in the show. And so, you know, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know that we need to like beat it into the ground or anything, but I do think mm-hmm. that, that we, you know, you know, just thinking about like, again, you know, if his, whole personality is based on a mask and like Mm -hmm. you know continuing to sort of put on these facades uh not just for Buffy but elsewhere too um you know I think that that's worth at least mentioning and sort of thinking about a little bit yeah uh and then Drew yeah the flashback with Drew 
right, right. should at least mention. I yes. love that they took an offhanded uh, the, the, reference the throwaway to, a, line, yeah. to, to the chaos demon. He's all slime and antlers. They're disgusting. Yeah. Uh, that's right. from and way... he's just sort of there, you know. Right. That's from way back in Lover's Walk, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's a couple seasons ago now at this point. Right. Um, so, uh, <laughs> just that, that, that whole scene is kind of funny. But also that, like, now we're getting, like, a fuller picture of sort yeah. of the progression of Spike's obsession with Buffy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Drew, like, of course, we've, we've heard the story, you know, in Lover's Walk of sort of Drew's leaving him. And, you know, for Spike, tender soul that he is. Uh, You know, we're getting the, oh, she left me for no good reason and whatever. But now we're seeing it from a different point of view. We're seeing, you know, one, we know that Drew has the sight. And so she sees things that others don't. And so she's seeing this obsession and not just that it's an obsession, but that, but that it's going to grow, you know, Mm -hmm. well before Spike even realizes he has it. And right. And so, of course, from that point of view, Spike has already sort of left Drew in a way, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, she like, you know, again, you know, it's sort of funny because you have this antlered thing dripping with goo in the background <laughs> and kind of being awkward and like, oh, I didn't know she like, had oh, a I'm boyfriend. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, there's also that idea of like, you know, there are, there there is an aspect of, you know, a lot of people who maybe cheat or leave their spouses uh, feel like whether it's true or not, they at least feel that it's true that, you know, their, their partner or spouse or whatever had emotionally left the relationship before that. And so the physical aspect of it, right. At least in their own opinion or defense is uh, the lesser sort of, of the two evils. Um mm-hmm. And not, you know, making any judgments one way or the other. That seems to be sort of the the position from which Drew is uh, coming at. Like, you've got this new obsession that isn't me. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, especially going back and thinking about where that started um, with Drew sort of being the one who was obsessed with Spike in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing sort of the great things they would do. Now she's seeing how he's going to go on sort of his own. And so she's right. sort of preempting that in a way. Um, yeah, no, that was kind of what I wanted to talk about was that's the way in which I think it does kind of retcon um, Spike's character in a way that I can see that when you go back to watch it again, you have to read the the earlier stuff in a different light of, you know, that this this obsession with Buffy isn't something that grew, that only started growing when he came back to Sunnydale, mm. you know, um, and as a result of the chip and all this other stuff, that it's, you know, if we believe Drew, it started earlier than that, that it's, you know, it's already in place, at least by this point, you know, when they're, when they fled after the end of season two or whatever it was, but, you know, potentially earlier, um, Mm. you know, and so you have to kind of, so again, 
this question of could he have shot her with the gun? Well, you know, I think Harmony's point about you've had plenty of chances and have never been able to do it, I think in light of this information, that's a really good point of, you know, maybe all those conflicts they've had of he could have taken her out and he didn't, and he didn't, you know, mm. consciously or subconsciously. Like, could he ever sure. kill her? At what point did this sort of, you know, conflicted feelings start? Um, and I think, too, especially when you add in this origin as the kind of mooning sensitive poet you know who you know writes love poems to the girl that he loves right and then you kind of when we first meet him he's sort of the one taking care of drew you know who sort of comes in all sort of you know before she gets her strength back is sort of ailing and sick and everything and he's like devoted to her you know and and so i think you get this and even the way he admits that once he finds out what a slayer is, he's obsessed with them. Like, he has to go um, find them and, and fight them and kill them and everything. Like, you get this pattern of Spike being sort of obsessed with women, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, and part of that might be, like, I feel like the fact that they started with a woman that he loved, you know, rejecting him in a particularly cruel way. It's like... Sure. Hmm, then he goes off and, and picks fights with strong women. Like, that's an interesting trend. Like, there's right. a kind of, like, right. does he love them or hate them? Is this, like, misogynistic in a way? Like, I have to go, you know, put, put down her... these women yeah. who kind of think they are all that, and I'm going to show them. But there's also a side of him that kind of loves them, too. So he can't, you know... So he kills these slayers, but he can't really hurt Buffy because he's sort of... So it's an interesting kind of, like, mm. mixed feelings for him, I think. And it does... When Whenever I go back and, you know, do a rewatch, I feel like this episode would not do a complete change on how I view the character, but give me a lot more information about, um, you know... Uh, sure what makes him tick really um i think it it opens up a lot of other ideas that weren't necessarily there before yeah definitely and i mean you mentioned retcon and i think there is in a way that but it's also like i think there's it's even i think more similar to like even in real life where it's like you're not really you're not really retconning anything like you're not like mm -hmm. re-explaining or recontextualizing per se but it's more like you're just learning more about someone's life who you thought mm -hmm. you knew really well and right. so like um so like i think you know like like for example say like a grandparent or you know, even like an aunt or uncle or, you know, a family friend that mm -hmm. who's maybe someone who's, you know, older, like maybe, you know, friends with your parents or, you know, more like your parents generation. But then like you, you sort of know that something happened before, like say maybe with a spouse or a former spouse or, you know, mm -hmm. something that happened, you know, before you were born. And then like, you get the quote full story from someone right. at some point. And so it's just like, Oh wait, that's completely different than I had ever like sort of imagined it, right. you know, or 
then I realized, uh, you know, just while I was yeah. uh, hearing like bits and pieces before. So, I mean, I, I guess in a way that's sort of still under the retconning, but I think it's different mm-hmm. than like saying like, oh, we're going to go back and totally re-explain this thing that was in a different way than maybe you understood it. Um, right. Think- well, and, and I mean it in a, in the best way, because I think, I think I've said before, like for me, the best retcons feel like they were inevitable sure. anyway. And yeah. all, to me, the only de- definition is that we didn't know it the first time around. Like, you know, we, we didn't have this. So in a sense it's retcon because it's information that wasn't, literally wasn't there before so you you couldn't have known this and the writers probably didn't know this but Mm -hmm. it's still i think if it's a successful retcon it'll not only fit with what went before but make it better you know make it fuller um sure and it doesn't it, it it should fit it shouldn't you know it changes what i know about spike but it doesn't contradict what i know about spike if that right. makes sense. Like, right. it enhances what I know without telling me, oh, you were wrong with whatever you thought. Um, you know, I think it it sort of just embellishes on what sort of we knew before. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I don't mean to, like, say that you were wrong to use the word retcon. I think, at least how I think of retcons, I guess I just think of them differently than like this particular Mm -hmm. situation but i yeah like i think i think that makes sense the way you explained it there too so um anyway fair enough anyway uh all right so what any any other final things for like spike or spike and buffy together um um i think I think I covered everything I wanted to cover. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Then um, we should spend a moment or two just talking about Joyce real quick before we move on to Doctor Who. And I actually right. have one other thing to mention before we move on to Doctor Who as well. Okay. Um, um, yeah. And I mean, I don't have, I think, I mean, the most important thing for Joyce in this episode is that kind of effect on Buffy in the way that that informs the last scene but I mean obviously this will be important going forward you know is this you know idea of her whatever's going on with her not being um solved or even diagnosed yet um so but it's not sort of going away easily so they have to go in and do more extensive tests so and that's interesting in an episode where like you said like Buffy's confronting her mortality and even Giles is confronting his mortality like you know everybody is in a way or Riley going and being reckless um then you know you have this kind of little shock moment at the end of you know um Joyce potentially confronting hers and not because of a vampire or, you know, um, any sort of grand destiny, but just, you know, because of whatever sort of health problem she has. So, um, you know, and that in a way being much harder for Buffy to deal with, like she can kind of face death herself and make peace with it. Um, even if she doesn't, 
go down easily, but, um, you know, the death of a parent being, in a way, a lot scarier of a thought than, than sure. her own. Um, and that's, after everything, that's what kind of causes the breakdown. It's not her own fear. It's that kind of fear for her mom, I think. Yeah, and the not knowing what's what causing yeah. things and not not even knowing if there's anything there. Like yeah. that, you know, it's, I think, as scary as, you know, medical issues can be, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the scariness comes from not knowing if there's even a medical issue or what type of medical issue it is or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, like... You know, even as Joy says, it could be nothing or it could be not nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, there's just that very ambiguity is mm-hmm. is scary in and of itself. So, yeah. 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 And, and yeah, and, and the cause, if there, I mean, presumably there's some cause, but not knowing what that cause could be. Um, is it mystical? Is it not? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And, I mean, we get, we got the spell where Buffy, you know, discovered Dawn and, yeah. you know, her, her not being real, but, um, or not being originally a person anyway. Uh, but yeah, we don't, we don't really know from, you know, we don't really know what's causing Joyce's problems at this point, so. Right. Okay. Well, you said you had one. Yeah. So the other thing that I want to mention is that, um, and I had mentioned this to you sort of last week. Um, I didn't mention it on the podcast, but the next episode. So even in, in talking about this episode, you mentioned that like, we still don't know a lot about Darla. Mm. Incidentally enough, the next next episode of Angel is titled Darla. Oh, perfect. Um, And, uh, (laughs) I'm mentioning, I know we don't usually talk about the upcoming episodes, but I did want to mention, even though these aren't, like, specifically crossover episodes of Buffy and Angel, I mean, Mm -hmm. we do see, like, Angelus and Darla in flashback here. Um, Even though these aren't specifically crossover, though, uh, episodes, they are considered companion episodes. Um, And just remembering, again, that, like, so these are airing back-to-back. So you're getting Spike uh, in Fool for Love here and his backstory, um, yeah. you know, and then this episode titled Darla of Angel is airing like immediately after, right. uh, I'll mention that, uh, the Angel episode Darla is written and directed, uh, mm-hmm. directorial debut on Buffy, uh, by Tim Minear. Okay. And so thinking about that, we already know that Tim Minear likes to explore histories of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we got like, uh, uh, the somnambulist with Penn and right. sort of his history with Angel. We got, um, uh, uh, are you now or have you ever Yes. Been? Thank you. Um, you know, where again, we're exploring Angel's history. So yeah. without explicitly telling you what this episode might be about, but by giving you the title of the episode and, uh, reminding you of, yeah. you know, the writer and director of the episode, uh, his predilection for stories, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and even like thinking about like out of gas, you know, which is sort of the sure. origin story of serenity, uh, as a ship and, and the crew as they come together. Um, you might 
put those things together and presume what could potentially be the uh, theme of um, that episode of Angel, especially in considering that it's considered a companion episode to this okay. uh, origin story of Spike, as it were. So <laughs> if I've not given enough hint by now, then, you know, you should stop listening to our podcast. Cause, you know, I, so I'm sorry, can you say that again? No. Yeah, okay. no. Um. Uh, so yeah, anyway, but, but I did at least want to mention that it's, it is considered a companion episode and that, you know, we, we do have some, uh, not again, not like storyline crossover, but maybe thematic crossover. Uh, yeah. Here, so, okay. Anyway, with that said, let's move on to Dr. Who. Okay. <clears throat> and so robot of Sherwood, I mm-hmm. wanted to actually start out talking about Clara. Okay. Because, uh, one, we start, actually, I was trying to think about other episodes <clears throat> where we've seen her mm. sort of already in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I didn't do like a survey, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the episodes with Clara that we've seen so far, she's been at home or mm-hmm. something. Um, now, I guess there was the first episode this season where, like, we actually start with, like, the Paternoster gang and stuff. And there's, like, sure, the, you sure. know, like, we get Clara later. So we don't actually see, like, at what point she right. went with the Doctor. Um, except well, but even that, that is, like, picking up right after. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, except yeah. that, like, the assumption is that, like, she was in the TARDIS yeah. and he regenerated. And that's when... Like they right. went back to the dinosaurs, right? Right, right, right. Swallowed us. So, like, I don't, yeah. I don't, like, sort of accepting that, and maybe one or two other exceptions. Yeah, I feel like, like the only exceptions that I can think of are times where, like that, where it starts with like the supporting characters, like where you're in the world of whatever. So, like, mm. you're in, um, like, you start in the haunted house with like Doctor Palmer and Emma. And then the Doctor and Clara come in, or I think it starts in Cold War. I think it starts in the submarine, and then they materialize there. Oh, but, like, again, like, you're starting with, like, the world and the supporting characters. Right. Which is, I think, different than starting here, like, with... I think you're right. Like, this is the only time where it's them in the TARDIS, but at, it's starting with them and they're together. Yeah. That I can think of, and, yeah. And and in thinking about that, I, I, I see that as being different than other companions. Right. Where I feel like with Amy and Rory, we had... I, and again, like, the, I have not done any, like, scientific, like, counting. Sure, of, sure. Uh, you know, episodes here or anything. It's just a sense that I get that, like, with Clara, yeah. we're more often seeing her at home or, like, last yeah. episode we saw her, like, at school, at school you right. know, and doing things. Like, I think part of her characterization as a companion has actually been that she spends more time outside the TARDIS and mm-hmm. outside the Doctor's company, at least subjectively for her, than yeah. she does with the Doctor and in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to sort of start by pointing out that that seems unusual but then yeah. also that uh, it's unusual in that she is given a choice. And, like, we've seen that progression with other companions of, you know, the Doctor sort of letting them choose yeah. where they might want to go. 
Um, but again, like I feel like we've been with Clara for a while, and that maybe it's taken a little bit longer mm-hmm. than some other companions to get to that point for her. And so the, I, I think that's a notable. Um, I don't know that there's a ton more to say about it than just sort of acknowledging that it exists, but uh, yeah. that it's a notable sort of development in their character. Um, and of course, you know, once she picks something, what does she pick? She picks a myth, uh, right. you know, and the doctor sort of criticizes like that's actually not real and yeah. um, whatever. But I think, of course, there's her choosing the, you know, to go want to go see Robin Hood and all of that. Um, there's a couple references to to the comparison of the doctor himself. Like he's mm-hmm. like, why would you want to go see? you know, something that's not, you yeah. know, that's a myth or whatever. And then, and then like, um, uh, you know, like later when, when she's talking about, uh, oh, I forget the exact quote, um, where he, where he says something like, when did you start believing in, uh, you know, impossible heroes or something mm-hmm. like that? And she's like, you, you don't really know. Like, that's kind yeah. of cute that you don't, Obvious, you, yeah. that you don't, <laughs> understand like where that started happening along the lines but um right, anyway right. I, and i don't that's i probably mangled that quote but like you know that sort of thing of it's part of her personality i guess you know mm-hmm. to have always wanted to see robin hood but that's also the sort of thing that draws her to the doctor and we right. you know got that same sort of thing even with um like i'm thinking like even the parallel with amy and the Pandorica and stuff Mm -hmm. like you know a lot of the stuff that they drew on there was from her own sort of predilection for Roman mythology Mm -hmm. and and certain types of stories and stuff and so right invasion of the hot Italians right but that's also like you know from the beginning talking about her as sort of her own fairy tale character and like you know the Wendy Darling sort of thing with the space whale episode and and that kind of thing so um, you know, I, again, like just, just sort of noting that, uh, well, like, I think it's, um, sorry, finish what you're saying. Well, yeah, just sort of noting that like her desire to go back and see Robin Hood is kind of in a way the same, the same instinct that wants her, you know, to go in the TARDIS in the first place and, and be, right. you know, with the doctor and, and experiencing, especially, now that we've taken out the sort of flirtatious, you know, mm. aspect of it and, mm-hmm. um, you know, potential romantic aspect of it, um, you know, she's still traveling kind of with the doctor, even though we don't, she doesn't know if he's a good man. And, you know, like some right. of those more recent discussions about who and what the doctor is at this point. Um, right. But again, her point from last time about, it, he tries to be good and that that's, yeah. that's the point as she sees it. And that's kind of that, um, that effort towards the heroic, the idea of, of the hero who throws away what he has to help other people, um, sure. is, is obviously attractive to her. But, um, and I think too, it's important that as the kind of English teacher, she picks a quote fictional or, or mythic or liter or a, you know, legendary hero that, you know, that's kind of mm. what she's into is, is stories. Um, and sure. And like even her thing 
I think in the premiere she talked about like the only pinup she ever had was Marcus Aurelius that like again she's a very literary minded person that that's mm-hmm. kind of what she's into is um you know the heroes from you know books that she's read and and those kinds of things and she doesn't really care if he's real or not and she's kind of like just assumes that the doctor can find him which he does so mm-hmm. it sort of like all works out um you know, and yeah. don't bo- don't bother me with the trifles like he's not real. Um, you know, like for Clara, it's very real. Right. Um, and, you know, she loved him then and she loves him now and she'll keep on loving him. And mm-hmm. and that kind of seems, you know, I think I was trying to think of, I think it's the first one in the new series. I'm sh- I feel like there are examples of this more in the classics where the lines between like fictional characters and real historical characters got blurred a bit more, but mm. I feel like that had something the new series hasn't done a lot of. Um, like pretty much when we've met known, you know, figures, they've been historical. Um, right. Like, now maybe a kind of genre literary literary version of them, but but still like there are people that actually existed like Charles Dickens or, you know, um, Queen Elizabeth, and even Agatha Christie, where like her books come to life. That's sort of explained as, Oh, they're feeding on her imagination and all these things. Um, whereas like here you actually have, you know, what the doctor is saying is is a storybook character that isn't real. Um, you know, being sort of primary and, and, you know, interacting with, with history it seems Mm. so um but it seems like appropriate that it would be clara to sort of 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 the companions that she's the first one to say where do you want to go i want to go into this book (laughs) like sure that seems sort of fitting i think Um, well and also the idea that like a lot of legends are based on are sort of historical anyway right Right. I mean, it's more plausible. Like, there's there is more plausibility with that with Robin Hood than with some other things. So, like, yeah, there's that kind of almost pseudo historical, like where he could be based on a real person or an amalgamation of different people. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But and when we talk about him, I want to talk more about that idea. the other yeah. thing I kind of wanted to make sure we note about Clara is this um, in the kind of frustration of dealing with what turns into the doctor and Robin sort of just not getting along and bickering with each other, mm. the way she kind of assumes that leadership role of, you know, telling them to, you know, telling them to shut up, but also trying to get them to like, do something like okay like do we have a plan you know like do we have any sort of plan at all does it involve the screwdriver because he took the screwdriver you know and all this stuff to the point where you know the guard sort of picks her out as you know the the obvious ringleader of the group right um yeah and you also get the sense that this is her using her teacher skills you know mm -hmm. in in that sort of way as well like it's you know resolving classroom arguments right. kind of thing um yeah right yeah no, and that's definitely. the kind of 
And that's the kind of more attractive side of the like bossy control freak side of her. You know that she you know <laughs> she can be a bossy control freak, but also she's good at it. She's she's a leader, and you know right. will sort of rein in her guys when they're sort of not being very helpful. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and. So I guess the only the only other, uh, well, and so I mean, there's sort of her, I you know, without talking like about the other characters too much, just like her pushing back too against like the sheriff and mm-hmm. and sort of using her, you know, intelligence and you know, wiles, I guess we'll call them, um, right. you know, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, to sort of get him to acknowledge what she suspects mm-hmm. is going on. Um, but also, you know, like there's a, like the sheriff, oh, I like you, you're refreshingly direct. He very soon gets over the liking that mm. <laughs> as an aspect of her character. But, right. you know, it is. It's part of her character, too. Um, which, of course, then she goes on to sort of not be quite as direct and get the information out of him anyway. Um, right. Which she also doesn't like. So, you know, there, there is that aspect though, that, uh, you know, she is, she is the straightforward and doesn't have, I guess you could almost call it the no nonsense school marm, you know, type mm-hmm. of, you know, she doesn't have the patience to put up with sort of the nonsense, right. um, aspects of what the doctor and Robin are doing, but, right. uh, and what the sheriff and any other person she happens to meet is there. But, but at the same time, like, even though she's not wanting to put up with like the nonsense aspects, like it, you know, there's, there's an aspect there where you can think like, Oh, well, you know, that means she's no fun or whatever. But like, there's also like, she enjoys the merry men and they're laughing and Mm. the, well, merriment, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of all that. And, and seems to be, like, there's not a big emphasis on, like, the thing that usually gets emphasized. And I feel like I'm I'm sort of transitioning and talking about Robin Hood here rather okay. than Clara so much. But, like, you know, the Robin Hood stories as emphasized sort of today is, you know, the stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And mm-hmm. there's not a huge emphasis on that mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, you know. Right not completely unacknowledged per se, but like just, just, I I kind of like that in a way because it, Mm. it does kind of give you like, yeah, there is more to the Robin Hood story than just that one sort of line that people Mm. always take away from it or, you know, that one sort of idea and that, that it is more about like, you know, yes, there is an evil sheriff, uh, you know, doing bad things but there's also the aspect of like these are people who are just trying to make the world a little bit better in their own way Mm -hmm. and maybe they're not always good at it but they're at least sort of enjoying themselves at the same time and and yet not completely losing sight of yeah kind of why they're outlaws to begin with (laughs) Um, right and that kind of thing so i don't know well and again it's that idea of are you a good person well do you try to be you know that right you know um, right. And yeah, and maybe everyone gets a little bit lost along the way and, and, but she's at least there to sort of help him help Robin sort of remember 
you know, that he is, you know, yeah. what it is like Marion says to him, you know, and, uh, you know, just kind of what his sort of role is, um, not even as like a storybook hero, because like to him, he's not a storybook hero. And, mm-hmm. and even so, you know, again, so, okay, I'm, I'm going right into, you know, yeah. Robin and whatever, but even like his, his comments to the doctor about like, you know, is it true that all I, all they remember about me is sort of these legendary pieces Mm -hmm. and like, he's okay with that, but also like, like not in a way that like gets into his head, you know, Mm -hmm. like not in, not in a way that's like, Oh wow. I'm a legend. Of course I am. Cause I'm so great, you know, kind of way, but like, like the, like the good, like that's, that's the things that people should remember. Like don't Mm -hmm. remember the flaws. Um, you know, uh, and, and that's where even our, uh, episode title comes from is, you know, history is a burden. Like knowing all the facts about a person is maybe not the best way to remember a person. It's the, it's the stories. Stories can make us fly. And though it's that, you know, becoming a legend or becoming a fairy tale that actually is what's inspirational to people and what ends up doing good for people. It's not necessarily like, not that, not that it's not good to pursue accurate history and find out the truth behind things, mm-hmm. but there is an aspect and I'm actually, so this is interesting because this, I didn't really think about this before, but this ties into, um, uh, a short book of criticism I'm reading right now by um, D.H. Lawrence mm-hmm. uh, on uh, what is like classic stories of American literature or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and he, he has some criticisms of, you know, like uh, James Fenimore Cooper and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for like his leather stocking tales for being, you know, sort of, noble savage type stories you know and kind of that sort of thing and and there is uh, and and he also criticizes like ben franklin for his like you know list of moral uh uh you know things that he like even he himself didn't live up to and and a number Mm -hmm. of other so there is that but there's also like like the thing that i dislike about that is like well what what's your alternative is that then Mm is that then novels become completely 100% historically accurate? And, like, mm-hmm. is that even the purpose of, like, fiction? And is it even right. fiction at that point? Like, right. like so, you know, there, there's that there's that idea of, like, okay, it's fine to criticize, you know, whatever, I guess, for not being, painting a accurate historical picture, but mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily trying to paint an accurate historical right. picture. So, like, what what would you rather have? Um, you know, and speaking of which, does are your own novels exactly perfectly, uh, you know, accurate or whatever? But that's neither here nor there, I guess. So, mm-hmm. so I do like that aspect of you know the stories can make us fly, and that that's like that's the thing they're focusing on. It's even though it's not, um, you know, not something that uh, necessarily. Robin Hood thinks about the whole, you know, time or whatever, like he's just doing his thing, but like there is some truth to that. And so, I don't know, I guess I feel like I'm kind of rambling at this point. So if you have anything to add, feel free to jump in. But Well, one, 
one thing that it reminds me of is um, the Vincent Van Gogh episode because there's both this kind of um, moment where they're sort of shown their legacy by the doctor and it takes very different tones. I mean, in the one you have, you know, Matt Smith kind of very kindly, you know, taking him to the future. And so in like, he's, he breaks down in tears and Matt Smith is just so nice and all this, like, you know, mm. isn't it wonderful? And then here you have Peter Capaldi, like, yeah, you're not real. There's all the pictures of all the illustrations of the people who wrote books about you. Like, yeah, you're just a fake, like totally not, you know, it's not a kindness at all. It's like, right. he's just, you know, proving to him, you know, what I knew it all along. Um, but I mean, in both, you kind of both get this sense of what, what do people, A, that I have a legacy that people, yeah you know, which seems to kind of be Robin Hood's kind of conclusion here is it's just nice that there is a legacy and that it's a good one. And mm. that's more important than whether it's accurate or not. Like you said, like if people remember well of me, then you know, that must mean that I've done some good things, even though, um, even though it doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily paint the whole picture. Um, but that reminds me too of, um, you know, when Amy is upset about, uh, Vincent, um, you know, still kind of ending in suicide, the doctor's kind of response being about, well, you know, lives have good things and bad things and, you know, the, the good things, you know, the good things don't cancel out the bad things, but they can, you know, the bad, but vice versa, the bad things don't mean that yeah. the good things are unimportant or whatever it is. Well, I totally and, messed that and up. we've and, even, sorry. Well, but just that being kind of the idea of, you know, maybe this isn't historical, historical accuracy and maybe this isn't, you know, maybe this Robin has done some bad things in his time, or if there was a Robin Hood, maybe he wasn't necessarily the hero on the pedestal, and maybe he, you know, wasn't exactly what we always want him to be. But does that mean that we're not better off with the legacy as we remember it, you know? Um, Which is, I think, a good note for the Doctor, too, because especially coming off the last episode, which I think was pretty dark for him and like Mm. you know and and kind of saying how much have you learned really and are you better than daleks and all this stuff and i don't think again the good things don't cancel the bad things it doesn't mean that he isn't flawed or doesn't make bad mistakes but there's also this sense of you know the good things you know the bad things he's done also don't cancel out the good and that right there's a value to sort of having heroes and some sort of, you know, ideal to strive for. Um, sure. You know, and, and I like the line about maybe we're not heroes, but maybe if other people can be heroes in our name, then we'll have done something good. You mm. know, if, if you know, it's great to do good things yourself, but maybe even better if you can inspire, you know people to do good things and then can your legacy be that bad really if if people look up to you and want to emulate your good behavior then you must have done something right i think sure sure 
Yeah, I was thinking even as you said that, like we, you know, reducing someone to say a particular moment in their life, even if it's their final moment, such as like mm-hmm. you know, Van Gogh and suicide. Yeah, is uh, you know by definition reductive, right? And mm-hmm. and so um, we like we've talked about that too, just in context of stories. So things like, um, you know, the the does the last episode or the last moments of a final episode, you know, mean that the entire series doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't matter or was stupid or, you know, mm-hmm. you be whatever, because you didn't like how it ended in per se. Right. And, and I mean, I think we both agree that that's not the case, even though mm-hmm. in some cases it may seem, uh, more egregious than others. Sure. Um, well, and uh, I, that's a popular, that seems like a, a popular thing now, which I tend to bristle at, you know, and, you know, sure. I just think that's kind of not that I don't think endings can or should, you know, be well crafted, but but like you said, to kind of reduce something to one particular aspect of it or moment of it to me seems like a reductive reading. But um yeah. that's beside the point. But um it's a little bit of a pet peeve, but Yeah, and fair enough. Um you know, so from that you know, I think that's a similar idea of, you know, what we're talking about here is that you can't just, you know, the whole point is that you're, you know, reducing, reducing a character or a person or whatever to a particular moment isn't Mm -hmm. good. But also, you know, again, on that other end, maybe always having all the facts and all the flaws Mm -hmm. (laughs) of every character pointed out, you know, in exact accurate detail is you know so maybe there is you know maybe it is about sort of smoothing things out a little bit or you know sort of focusing on the good parts uh in a way and that's that's what at least robin hood seems to think is Mm -hmm. a good (laughs) a good way to go about it and not again not ignoring flaws or whatever because stories don't you know good stories will also you know mention that maybe not everything Robin Hood did was always mm-hmm. good or always successful or you know whatever um that he made mistakes as well but but it's not about necessarily focusing on on all of those specific historical aspects of the you know life yeah uh, per se well and it's that that idea of how how do you want to be remembered so you know I may enjoy reading a story with deeply flawed characters but also you can see Robin Hood being pleased that his legacy is a positive one. You know, that each of us right. in our own, you know, we want our own legacies to be to be well-remembered and well-thought of. Um, so yeah. that's a kind of, aside from fiction, I think that's a kind of historic, or a, a personal sort of reality too. Um, sure. Sure. Um, so between well okay i don't i don't know that i have a lot to actually say about like the merry men um sure other than how merry they are how merry they um, are. we get we get sort of the are interactions you all simple and, and, or yeah yeah and the names uh you know sort of the name dropping of mm-hmm. uh you know like little john and and yeah. friar tuck and that kind of thing but um yeah. uh i don't know that 
they do a whole lot? Do you have anything no, in I particular mean, to say about uh, them? I mean, they, I put them in the list of kind of, um, I think, the episode sort of ticks a fair amount of the boxes of, like, what are the ingredients for the Robin Hood story? So, like, I think you mentioned sure. before we were recording that this is obviously, like, the genre story of, okay, what are the elements of this kind of thing? And, you know, the Merry Men is one, and, and these ones, like, these named guys in particular. Um, so it, that it's stuff like that, like, with the archery contest um, and, yeah. you know, the fight on the bridge with a spoon instead of with quarter staffs. But like, there's all those things of like, this is what you need for a Robin Hood story. So, you know, I don't think sure they do a whole lot, but um, you know, they're part of the texture of the world, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, just the fun of they're the merry men. So we're just going to make them like obnoxiously merry, you know, like right in that kind of like Robin Hood men in tights way of like, um, you know, they're going to earn their title of Merry Men and, you know, annoy the doctor as much as possible. So, you know, they're just right. sort of silly and laughing all the time. And, and I do like the little medieval joke of, oh, if you really had these diseases, you'd be dead in six months. You know, I am real. Well, bye. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, whatever he is like, you know, not the plague, but some sort of medieval thing, which isn't vaccinated, you know, um, so, right. you know, I think there's some nice little humor with them. Right. Um, and so, I mean, same thing really kind of for the sheriff, like, especially when we find out that, like, he's, he sort of thinks that he's using these robots to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like that it's like his he's very parochial about his like plan to conquer right. things. Um, uh, but right. you know, first Darby, uh, then Lincoln, then the world, <laughs> like right, starting right. from like, he's going to conquer the, the local County first and then we'll worry about the world. But like, yeah. Right. Well, and also that like anything beyond that is the world. The like, world. Right. Right. Like, like that his conception of the world is anything not in his immediate vicinity. Right. Um, right. Yeah, anything out so of a 50-mile radius is sort of big thinking, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, but, you know, um, the robots. I, I, I almost expected, like, when you first realize that, like, you know, he, he, the arm falls off and, like, you see his robot, I, I expected it to be Cybermen. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it wasn't, but right. that's fine. Um, the other thing, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about the whole, like, cross laser thing. Because um, mm. you get, like, almost the, like, you get the projection, like, one of the early ones that they kill is, like, you know, it's like a cross on his forehead. So it's almost mm. like a ash wednesday kind of thing you know okay. where it's like right. whatever um but you know at the same time there is the sort of medieval symbolism of like you know the church and warfare and crusades mm -hmm. type of thing so it was kind of right. an inversion of that um in a way right not right. a huge and, thing it was just kind of, of, I, I just thought it was kind of weird the way they did it i did i don't 
I guess, right. really dislike it or like it one way or the other. It's just kind of weird, I thought. Well, and um, I feel like Robin Hood is associated with the Crusades anyway, um, you know, yeah, because of that's sure. where the king is supposed to be, is off fighting in the Crusades, which is why his, well, his corrupt brother is on the throne. But, um, but, but also the idea of the rich taking from the poor, and you have the kind of medieval church issues with, like, the corruption, sure. you know, of the clergy, you know, t- taking yeah. and hoarding wealth. Right. Um, Stealing the alms and that kind of thing. You know? Right, right, and indulgences and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, ha- having the, the, the villain, the villainous robots be like knight slash clergy is sort of, I think, in keeping with the time period that it's sort of playing with. Sure. Um, um, and I, I do want to mention um, that there's the little uh, the little mention of the promised land again, that that's sort of where their yes. ship um, is, is trying to get to. Um, and maybe it does get there because they blow up. So who's to say? But, um, but that's sort of <laughs> in their databanks. We don't yeah. know where their souls go. We've seen other robots. We, sit, we saw the half-faced man sort of die and, and wake up in the promised land. So, um, you know, maybe they made it there too, but we don't really see that. Um, but at least for the ongoing arc, we at least get a little nod to that idea. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, I mean, I guess it's possible, but on, at the same time, it's possible that everyone we've seen die ends up there, but we only have two sort of confirmed cases, right? so we don't really know at this point. Um, no. Although I guess it would fit more along the lines with, like you said, the, the sort of clergy sort of aspect of mm. the robots. Um they're doing the Lord's work, hmm? I guess. Yeah. They're they're doing right. the Lord's work. I don't, I don't right. know. Right. Like, this is their sort of good works that will get them to yeah. to heaven, maybe? I don't know. But um, at least they have some sort of mythology of, of the promised land, just like the, the half-faced man did, um, which right. is interesting, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know. Okay. Uh, the robots are kind of, you know, your typical alien-ish mm-hmm. sort of plot device, so I don't know that I yeah. have a lot more to say about them in particular. Sure. Um, I mean, I like this episode. I don't, like, I, I think the biggest aspect, though, is really, you know, again... All, Although totally very different and much mm-hmm. more likable than the last episode, mm-hmm. I think I think again we have an aspect where sort of the main point is contrasting the Doctor with you know in the last episode with the Dalek, in this episode yeah. with Robin Hood. Right. So um, right, which is interesting to have them back to back of of total opposites. Opposites in a way, although I think it's interesting that, like, okay, last one you had him contrasted with a Dalek, which on the one hand is, like, you know, 
the most evil uber villain of the series. But also, it was like a good Dalek, in quotes. So, yeah. you know, it, so that's kind of complicated. And then in this, like, we have him contrasted with, a, you know, one of the great heroes of Robin Hood, but also, you know, you called Capaldi's doctor kind of an anti-hero in the last yeah. episode. And I think Robin's kind of the anti-hero, too. Like, you know, he's not sure. dark, really, but, you know, he is an outlaw. He does steal. Like, you know, he is kind of this, you know, person who had, you know, power and and land and nobility and title and sort of, you know, threw it all away and is now, like he says, like, living in the open, just sort of, you know, uh, living life as it comes to him, I guess. So yeah. even he isn't totally black and white either. Like, you have, you know... Right slightly kind of anti-hero shades to him too um. right right um yeah and so <laughs> you know so we get you know thinking of the doctor and the robin sort of being similar in ways um even though they're not the same person of course it brings back memories of when we did see you know two doctors uh with the rebel flesh and mm. uh you know, the two-part, mm-hmm. right? That was a two-parter, or no? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, him being an at, a bad influence on himself sure. uh, in particular. So if we look at, you know, again, even though they're not exactly the same person, but if we're looking at them as sort of mirrors uh, of each other in a way, in certain aspects, then you get sort of the worst qualities being brought out of right, right. the argumentativeness and uh, the one-upmanship. The show-off, yeah, uh, yeah. The, you know, and and sort of the wanting to prove yourself mm-hmm. uh, to this other person, even though, like, there's sort of a tacit, uh, you know, uh, uh, claim that, you don't really care about what this other person thinks. So, you know, like, like just those sorts of, um, less than desirable qualities sort of being brought out in both of them. Right. Um, right. and like you said, you know, that's what sort of prompts Clara to sort of step up and be like, okay, clearly I'm the leader here. Like I'm the adult in the room. So, uh, I should be the one who has to act like that. Um, and really her being the one to, I mean, you get sort of Robin coming in, you know, sort of you catastrophically at the end. Uh, right. You, you know, uh, with the whole, the, <laughs> you know, holding Clara in one hand and using the knife to like yeah. go down the tapestry in the other. And, you know, the, the sword fight over the pit of um, hot gold and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But, uh, I mean, it's really Clara who prompts all of the action, right? Like, so she's the one who gets from the sheriff what's actually going on, and she's the right. one who, um, you know, yeah, okay, so, like, she gets knocked out or whatever, but, like, she's the one who has all the knowledge to give to Robin in the first place and mm-hmm. and who sort of um, is going there. But then also you have, um, even though we don't we don't see... 
like we we don't know that she's Marion um, right up mm-hmm. front. Like you get Marion as sort of that same thing mm-hmm. for Robin, where it's like, even though it might be in the back of his mind a lot of the time, um, it's still there. Where like she's his main impetus for the right. way he is and what he's doing and whatever. So I I like I like those aspects too, which I get. I mean I guess that's comparing Clara and Marion more than the doctor and Robin, but from the doctor sure. and Robin's perspectives, it's, you're getting sort of similar sort of, uh, right. Imp- imp- impetuses, impeti. Uh, uh, well, I think, yeah, I think we, there's a little kind of parallel there of, they have a companion who right. does that for them and, and they kind of swap, you know, that you have like, you know, the doctor gets to, in a way kind of, I think, see, himself from the outside of like Robin comes you know swinging in all impossible and heroic with Clara at his side and that's sort of normally what the doctor would do um and so you know and and the way that he even um you know they have the fight on the kind of ledge over the the pit of gold which is sort of like an echo of the fight on the bridge at the beginning so Mm -hmm. you even kind of get Robin like using some of the doctor's moves there, like echoing sure. him. And um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to mention too was um, even more so than when the 11th doctor gets cloned and there's two of them there, what, you know, what these two remind me of is, is the day of the doctor when you have the grumpy war doctor there, you know, and it's kind of funny that now the primary doctor is, kind of more like that like like him saying like why do you have to say words like timey wimey why can't you act like grown up (laughs) um you know talk like an adult is sort of like this doctor with his you know do people punch you in the face when you laugh like that and like (laughs) he just has like no time for the you know um well he says he has no time for this merriment and silliness but like you said he can't help but get drawn into it um, like I, I really enjoy the archery contest when he like gets in there and the fact that you find out later that he cheated the whole time, all the arrows had like homing devices in them so that they would, so he's really not a good archer, but you know, he can shoot it in the other direction and it goes in and then he finally just blows the whole thing up because he's so tired of, you know, sure. Like, this is going to go on forever, so I'm just going to end this contest right now by blowing up the target. Um, Right. You know, so, like, he says he has no time for silliness and banter, but, you know. Yeah. He's he's a little grumpy, but he does find ways to get the banter in there and to get the silliness, you know. Sure, of course. There's definitely, he can't totally help himself, but... Um, But I do think it's interesting after going from, you know, young, silly Matt Smith to someone who is more like that war doctor of very serious and very, you know, you know, I don't have time for, you know, fictional fairy tale heroes and their, you know, and their merry men. So, um, you know. Um, And of course, the the sort of most poignant parallel I think is at the end where you have Robin Hood uh, you know sort of saying to the doctor 
uh, is it so hard or I don't maybe it's not quite at the end but um, you know is it so hard to credit that a man born into wealth and privilege should find the plight of the oppressed and weak too much to bear until one night he is moved to steal a TARDIS fly among the stars fighting the good fight like I love the mm-hmm. turn sort of halfway through that where yeah. at first you know he's like asking the doctor like am I really so hard to believe but then you realize oh wait he's actually talking about the doctor it's like yeah. are you really so hard to believe and and like the question of that one, I think the turn makes the answer less obvious because like, if you're thinking, Oh, he's talking about himself. Well, mm-hmm. then it's like, well, it's not so hard to believe because that's what happened with me, you know? But right. then if you're talking about the doctor, it's like, well, okay. Then, then like that question is almost being put to us as the viewers of mm-hmm. like, you know, is this, is this impossible or is it not? Is this, how people really are or is this just a story that Mm -hmm. is a nice story and you know we can leave it sort of where it lies and pick it up later if we want but you know Mm -hmm. that's all it is in the end so I like that there's a bit of a twist there and a bit of um not shift in focus just between the characters but even to to whom the question is being asked uh in a way right so right and 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 recalling this idea of the value of stories and that, you know, is if it's just a story, well, you know, according to Robin, it's better to be just a good story than to be, you know, than to just have the burden of history that, you know, stories are what make history bearable in the first place. Um, sure. So, you know, yeah, is this an impossible thing? And even if it is just an impossible story does that take away its value um and i think playing to you know almost kind of um of breaking that meta frame of you know i'm just as real as you are doctor of like you know like he's saying it like i'm as like i'm real like you are but we you have to read that as well the doctor's fictional like he is you know like so right. it kind of goes both ways there of um you know yes robin does end up being real in the primary world of doctor who but it's sort of flirting with that idea of the doctor being a sort of fictional storybook hero too um like even in even in his own world there's sort of there's sort of that almost hint of it um so yeah okay well i think i about covered everything i wanted to cover is there anything that we yeah no i think that's that's all of it for this week. Okay. Cool. So, all right. Well, we'll be back with, uh, again, with the episode Darla for mm-hmm. Angel and another episode of Doctor Who next week. All right. See you then.